Well, it's so good to be back with you this week. I want to say thank you to Randy and to Wade and Chris for filling in for me while I was away. Uh, I had an opportunity to go speak at uh, the Roots College Ministry Camp from Countryside Bible Church two weeks ago, and then I did a wedding for my nephew last weekend. That was a great time with family. But it is so good to be back together, not just back together, but back in the book of Hebrews. So we took a little break for the summer and, and covered various topics, but today we restart our journey, and we're in chapter 8. So turn to Hebrews chapter 8. This morning will be in verses 1 to 6. Hebrews 8, 1 to 6. Have you ever considered how our, our understanding of something's value impacts the way that we treat it? It's interesting because if something has intrinsic value, then its valuation doesn't really ebb and flow in the truest sense based on our appreciation of it. And yet at the same time, our response to that item is dramatically affected by how much we appreciate its value. Let me give you an example. Think of the difference in the way an eight-year-old boy at a baseball game responds to the national anthem compared to a 92-year-old World War II veteran who was the only man to return from his combat unit. American citizenship certainly has intrinsic value, but that little boy's appreciation of it can't ever match the appreciation that that 92-year-old war veteran has. Similarly, imagine if I invited you to my home and I asked you to help me redecorate some things and to move some things and there was a decorative vase and I said, hey, would you please move that vase from here to there across this tile floor? And imagine if I first, in the first scenario, told you that I got the vase at Hobby Lobby. Now, if, Hopefully, just out of friendship, you would take great care in moving that item, still not wanting to drop it or break it. But now imagine if I told you instead of Hobby Lobby that I bought it recently at an art auction for $500,000. Now, how differently would you carry that vase as well as wonder where I got $500,000? <laughs> But there's no doubt that our appreciation of something's value has an immediate impact on how we treat it. And while that's true when it comes to earthly objects and earthly relationships, it's even more importantly true, supremely true, when it comes to our valuation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, so many of our spiritual struggles in life when it comes to sin and temptation find their beginning in the insufficient knowledge or appreciation of the value of Christ. Just think, for example, of the, the sin of discontentment. If we're thinking rightly about the riches of Christ and what we have in Christ, then what earthly circumstance could possibly warrant the sin of discontentment? It was A.W. Tozer who famously coined the words, what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And the author of Hebrews evidently agrees with that statement because his solution to the spiritual apathy of his readers is to draw their attention over and over and over again back to the person of Christ for us to see the true superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ in every realm. His primary concern is that we all understand the magnitude of the value of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
And like a master jeweler displaying his finest stones, he takes the Lord Jesus Christ and and puts a magnifying glass and a spotlight on him from different angles and says, look and look and look again. And this morning, that's exactly what we have the privilege of doing again. And I pray as we look again at the supreme value of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it would mark our lives, that we wouldn't be the same in the same way that we would never carry a vase from Hobby Lobby with the same diligence that we would a fine piece of art. May we never undervalue the precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember the theme of the book as a whole is the superiority of Christ. We've been making our way verse by verse, section by section. Let me just remind you, it's been a while. I'm just gonna give you the basic sketch of where we've been. Also, there's an outline of the entire book of Hebrews back on the Connection Center if you'd like to have that for reference. But in chapter one, the first three verses, we saw that Christ is better than the prophets. Following that, we saw that Christ is better than the angels. Then coming into chapter three, we saw that Christ is better than Moses and Joshua. In chapter four, the last section that we've studied, chapter four to chapter seven, we saw that Jesus is better than the Old Testament priesthood. He's better than the priesthood that was started under the bloodline of Aaron. That was an exposition of Psalm 110, specifically verse four. And that ushers us into a new section today that picks up here in chapter eight, but will run all the way through chapter 10 and verse 18, which is this, Christ is better than the old covenant and its sacrifices. The the chief argument that we're gonna see this morning and in the weeks ahead is Jesus is superior. He has a superior covenant and a superior sacrifice. Remember those words, covenant and sacrifice. And before we read our verses, here's the the main idea. Christ's superior priesthood ensures the enjoyment of his superior covenant and sacrifice for every believer. Let me say that again. Christ's superior priesthood ensures the enjoyment of his superior covenant and sacrifice for every believer. Let's look together, Hebrews 8, beginning in verse one down through verse six. Now the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. As we enter into these verses, It's important to see in verse one that he begins with a wonderful announcement. This is an announcement that 
bridges us between what we studied about Christ's priesthood and ended in chapter seven into this new discussion of how that, that priesthood works itself out. What is the ministry of that priesthood and how does it affect you and I? And this announcement begins here in verse one and it's essentially this, believers have the superior high priest. Believers have the superior high priest. Look back at verse one. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest. It's impossible for us this morning to overstate the magnitude of that statement. This is a truth that should jump off the pages of your Bible and grab you by the shirt and wake you up. First of all, the author does us the favor of telling us what his point has been. Sometimes it's, it's hard to decipher that. And so the, the author says, here's what I've been getting at this entire time. The whole argument beginning in chapter 414 through the end of chapter seven, he says, now the main point in what I've said is this. In other words, that whole argumentation about the fact that Christ's priesthood comes through Melchizedek rather than the line of Aaron and all of those things is to bring us to the understanding that if you're a Christian this morning, we have such a high priest. That is, we have as our own, we are his, he is ours, this magnificent high priest that he's just described to us. This is a good reminder that we've gotta be very careful when we go through, especially a book like Hebrews that's very thick, there's a, there's a lot of details, there's a lot of Old Testament truths and we're trying to wrangle these things in our mind. It's very care, uh, important that we're careful not to turn this into merely an academic exercise. The careful exposition of Psalm 110 verse four that the author spent so much time laboring over was not simply a theological discussion for the sake of filling our minds with more knowledge alone. Instead, that knowledge was to lead us to a very personal application. And the application is when all is said and done and we now understand the superiority of this high priest, we need to understand we get that one, he's ours. Just in case we've forgotten, we have all slept several times now since we were in Hebrews. Let's look back at the end of chapter seven and remind ourselves sort of this summary statement of the things we learned about Christ. When he says such a high priest we have, what does he mean? Well, verses 26 to 28 of chapter seven says this, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. There's that same phrase. What kind of high priest? Well, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, holy, exalted above the heavens, the one who offered the perfect eternal sacrifice, the only real sufficient sacrifice, the sacrifice that ended all other sacrifices, that one is the one that we have ministering for us as the great high priest. 
And he does it now and he'll do it for eternity. Now, what has led the author to make this argument here in this particular context? Understanding that helps us understand the importance of the statement. It's important to keep in mind continually as we study Hebrews that these Christians are in a very vulnerable situation. There is some trial, some difficulty, some testing of their faith that has caused many of them to begin to wobble in their faith. In fact, from some of the strong language that we've read in the warning passages in Hebrews, it appears that that the author is so concerned about their faith to the point that some of them appear to be on the edge of apostasy. And so throughout this letter, he's bringing them back over and over again to the truth of who Christ is so that they will not be tempted to look back over the fence at their old life under the old covenant in Judaism with longing eyes to think, you know, things were just better then. He says, no, they weren't. Things were not better then. And in that context then, with all the difficulties that they've experienced, he then inserts this application. We have this kind of high priest who supersedes every other high priest. The implication then is why would you ever want another? Christian, why would you ever want another priest to represent you when you have this one, such a high priest? We'll get there eventually, but in chapter 10, the author actually outlines for us some of the things that these Christians are going through. We've read this before, but let me remind you, what are some of the things that they've been experiencing? Well, remember here, Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 34, he says, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, that is after coming to true faith and repentance, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. The author says when these Christians came to Christ, they lived faithfully for Christ, but it wasn't without cost. It cost them apparently in great measure. No doubt being Jewish believers, rejecting their Judaism, coming to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, they lost relationships. Apparently it cost some of them even their own personal possessions. Some of them were imprisoned. Others had those that they loved imprisoned and suffered along with them. It's very likely if we take the treatment of the apostles and the Christians in Acts as any format for understanding what was going on, that they weren't welcome in the synagogues. Their their places of worship now were not open to them that they'd grown up with, that they had thought of as the center of their religious life, now no longer accessible to them, their own people treating them harshly. And so the truth is in difficult times, Our flesh tempts us to be consumed with what we have lost. It tempts us to be consumed with the cost. And yet the scriptures routinely bring our attention over and over again to what we have gained. This is what Paul says to the Philippians, Philippians 3, 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Both Paul and the author of Hebrews use the same tactic here when our flesh tempts us to think on only what we have lost, only the high cost of following Christ, they turn that right around and say, yes, but look at what you have gained. Rather, look at who you have gained in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have such a high priest. And if we have gained Christ, then we have gained all of the internal the eternal benefits, the enjoyment of the eternal benefits that come with Christ. Specifically in in the case here in Hebrews, we've gained the eternal enjoyment of his priestly ministry towards us. And so the author's saying, hey, Christian, wake up. You're looking at this wrong. Look at Christ, stop dwelling on what you've lost and dwell on who you have gained. Let me ask you this morning, Christian, are you personally weighed down because of some struggle in your life, something you have lost, perhaps directly because of your faith in Christ and following Christ, or perhaps just as a byproduct of life in a fallen world? Has your faith in Christ uh, caused strain in your family relationships? Have you been overlooked for that promotion and you have an assumption, a, a suspicion that that may be connected to the fact that you're open about your faith? Have your retirement plans gone all sideways in a fallen world? Has your health or the health of someone you love failed? Have your relationships failed to bring you the happiness that you so hoped that they would? Maybe you're cast down this morning and your faith is feeling wobbly because of something you've actually lost or perhaps it's because of something you fear you may one day lose. But either way, the same answer is here for us in the text. Christian, stop looking at what you've lost and look at the one you have gained. We Christians have such a high priest. And when we look at him rightly, everything else fades into the background, into its proper place. And if we have Christ, then we have the ministry of Christ, which he offers in the presence of the Father on our behalf. Just in case we've forgotten how wonderful this high priest really is, uh, the, the author's gonna bring us back to some, some reminders of things he's already touched on and things that he'll touch on in greater measure in the chapters ahead, but he, he reminds us specifically of two descriptions of Christ here. When he says we have such a high priest, I think that looks backwards and forwards in the letter. It looks backwards to the description we read at the end of chapter seven, but it continues to look forward at what he's going to say about Christ now. And the first description of this great high priest here is his superior seat, his superior seat. Look back at verse one. Now the main point in what has been said is this, we have such a high priest, and here's description number one, who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. 
Again, this is a description we've already seen in Hebrews, but just as a reminder, to be seated at the right hand of a king, or certainly of God, as is mentioned here, is the highest place of honor. And there's no doubt that this is a reference to God the Father because of the title that he gives to him. He calls him the majesty in the heavens, the glorious one, the one who is above all. This one, Jesus Christ, this high priest is seated there at the right hand, at the highest place of honor next to the Father. But there's something else here, something else we have to pay attention to. Also a truth that's been reiterated time and time again in Hebrews and will continue to be because it's essential for us to keep in mind. Why is it that we should be so overjoyed to have this high priest? Well, it's not just the fact of his position, but it's his posture in that position. What does it say about his posture here? He is seated. He's taken his seat at the right hand of the Father. What's the significance of that in the context of his priesthood? Well, the significance is the fact that his sacrificial work is done. The priest under the old covenant never sat down when they were on the job. There were no chairs in the Holy of Holies. This was no time for sitting because the work was never done. There was never a time in which enough sacrifice had been made to pay for sins. And so there's just this continual flow day after day of work, of sacrifice after sacrifice. But for Christ, it's an entirely different situation because not only is he exalted to the highest place, but he sits there because his work is done. It's been fully paid. He does something that the other priests never could even have conceived of under the old covenant. He sits and he sits in the highest place. This is, this is magnificent for us because it, the son sits there at the invitation of the father. And so what we have here is the affirmation of both the father and the son as the son sits that his work is done. It's been accepted. The price has been paid, never to have to be paid again. Christian, you have such a high priest, one who is in the highest place, one who has paid for all your sins, past, present, and future, never to be revisited again. This is a cause for rejoicing, amen? This is our high priest. Now, that, this is a topic that's going to be discussed in great length in the chapters ahead, and so we'll leave this description now and move to the second description, which is in verse two, his superior sanctuary. Not only does he have a superior seat, but apparently, as it says here in the scripture, he has a superior sanctuary. Verse two, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. Here we find yet another wonderful description of Christ. The fact that Christ is seated there at the Father's right hand, his sacrificial work is done, yes, but It's important for us to to not think that because he sits there and his work of redemption is done, that he is inactive. Because here we see that he is actually still a minister. 
That is, Christ is still ministering on the behalf of his people. So yes, he's seated in the sense that his sacrifice is sufficient and it's done, but now on the basis of that sufficient sacrifice, he ministers for his people in the very presence of God. He is a minister, it says in verse two. What does this ministry consist of? Well, he's already told us at least some of that in Hebrews chapter seven. Remember in verse 25, how does it describe his work for us? It says, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. You remember we read John 17 when we went through that section. You can go and read that on your own. That's Christ's high priestly prayer. There we get a glimpse into the kinds of things that Christ prays for his people. And still today he intercedes for us in the very presence of God, unceasingly ministering on our behalf. He prays for you if you're in Christ. He prays for me. He's committed himself as our high priest to this ministry on our behalf as an advocate before the Father. So though he sits, he is not inactive. And the main point of this though is that he is there ministering in a very particular place What is this place? He says he's a minister in the sanctuary and he describes that sanctuary as the true tabernacle. He ministers in the true tabernacle and then he describes how this tabernacle was made. It wasn't made by the hands of men, but this is a tabernacle made by the very hands of God. And so the point clearly then is that Jesus carries out his ministry in the real tabernacle, in the true tabernacle, the tabernacle that is in heaven itself, that is there in the very presence of God, built by God's own hand. The word tabernacle there clues us in that this is, this is meant for us to, to have a comparison in mind between the tabernacle given to Moses to build in the wilderness and this tabernacle that is a heavenly tabernacle. That tabernacle, the the one given right after the Exodus, was a tabernacle given with specific instructions. This was a, when it says that this tabernacle that Christ ministers in is the true tabernacle, he, he doesn't mean that the old tabernacle was false, as if that was false worship or that they did it wrongly. What he means is this is the true tabernacle as we'll see later in the sense that that earthly tabernacle was just a shadow that pointed to the true. So this is the the real tabernacle. This is the one that God had in mind all along that the other system of worship was to point to. Now that's gonna be given to us in great detail in the chapters ahead again. So I'm gonna leave that for later and resist the temptation of diving into the specifics of how that tabernacle points ahead. But trust me, we will enjoy that study in the weeks to come. But for now, we just need to get the gist, the summary of what he's saying. This is really to whet our appetites for the larger argument that is coming. And what he's saying in summary is we're privileged to have this special high priest as our own. He's a high priest who is is in the highest place, who has finished his sacrificial work and has the, the, the honor and the privilege of eternally ministering in the true tabernacle. 
So in context then, the application for the original audience is why would you ever be tempted to go back to your life of Judaism, to the old covenant, the old priest, the old uh, temple, when we have the new and we have the, 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 the substance that that is just a shadow of. For us, the application is similar, but perhaps more broadly, what dark circumstance or temptation or trial could ever shake our faith or steal our joy in this great high priest who has secured our redemption and who constantly intercedes for us now at the hand of the Father. This is for our joy and our encouragement to press on in the faith. But after giving us these two descriptions, now we have three explanations that follow, that discuss this ministry of Christ. In verse two, when he introduces this fact that Christ is a minister, these explanations now begin to help us understand, well, what's the significance of that, that he has a ministry on our behalf? Think of these explanations like an ornate bridge that takes us from one bank of the shore to the next. And the previous bank is where we left off in chapter seven with the argument that he is the superior high priest. And we come across the bridge with these explanations into an argument of why that matters and that why this ministry as our high priest is superior. So let's look then at these explanations and what we're gonna find is that the superiority of Christ and his priesthood is gonna show up in his superior ministry, in his superior covenant, and in his superior sacrifice. And those are gonna be given to us over the course of a few chapters. But here's the first explanation in verse three. The necessity of his ministry. The necessity. Look back at verse three, he says, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it is necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. The point here is, is fairly simple and that is a high priest, to be a high priest has a role, has a ministry. If there's no ministry, then there's no legitimacy to his priesthood. And specifically, as you know, under the old covenant, the high priest had the, the privilege and the responsibility of presenting gifts and sacrifices, but chiefly the high priest presented that, that special sacrifice on the day of atonement that he brought into the holy of holies. But he had a ministry, he offered things to God on behalf of men. In the same way, if Jesus is gonna be our high priest, then it's necessary, it's right, that he too has a ministry and that he has something to offer, a superior sacrifice. Here, so much like the, the other aspects of what we've studied, the, the author's just introducing us to something that he wants to talk about in more detail to come. It's similar to when you write a research paper in college. Remember how fondly, those how fond those members are, memories are. But when you write a research paper in your introduction, you're supposed to just give a taste of the things that are to come. They ought to have an idea of what you're going to talk about, but you save the details for the body of that paper. That's the idea here. This is the introduction to a much longer discussion. 
So he tells us that, that Christ's ministry was absolutely necessary if he was to be a high priest and that specifically he had to have a sacrifice. But he's gonna talk about that sacrifice in the verses to come. At this point, he moves to a second explanation. Explanation number two, the shadow of his ministry. We've seen the necessity of his ministry, if he's gonna be a high priest. Now the shadow of his ministry in verses four and five. Look at verse four. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Now, this is a concept, again, that we've already talked about in detail, at least this beginning portion. When he says, if Jesus were doing his ministry on earth, he wouldn't be a priest at all. What he's referring to is what we discussed in detail in chapter seven, which is the fact that Jesus, of course, was not from the tribe of Levi, which he would have had to have been from in order to minister under the old covenant. He instead was from the tribe of Judah. We see this back in Hebrews seven, verses 12 to 14. He says, for when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken, speaking of Jesus, belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. So he's just reiterating the same idea. If he was carrying out this ministry in the earthly tabernacle, then he, he wouldn't really even be qualified to be a priest under that system because the old covenant required and demanded that he be from the line of Aaron. Now that in, initially sounds like it's a, something negative against Christ, as if that's highlighting something inferior in Christ. He wouldn't be allowed to be a high priest but actually it's the, the opposite. The point here in the end is to show the superiority of Christ because he goes on to describe why it is that God never intended for Jesus to serve in the earthly tabernacle or the earthly temple. Why? Verse five, who are those things that serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things? So the, the earthly ministry then of, the, of the, the high priest under the old covenant were just a shadow, a shadow of what was to come. And of course, which is greater, the substance or the shadow? Obviously the substance that casts the shadow is greater. And that's the point being made here. It's not a knock against Jesus that he wouldn't have been a, a high priest under the old covenant. It is actually uh, showing that the old covenant was inferior to him because it was all designed to point to who he was and what he would ultimately accomplish. And remember at this time that this letter is written, it's probably not many years before 70 AD when the temple would be destroyed, but at this time, the temple ministry is still happening. The people are still going. They're still giving their sacrifices. The, the priests are still ministering there in the temple. And yet, even so, the author says, hey, all of that, that's a shadow. That's a shadow of what Christ is doing on our behalf. And he's gonna argue this point, not just from... Uh, from his own mind, but he's gonna take us by the inspiration of the Spirit to an Old Testament passage. 
He's gonna say this is rooted in the Old Testament itself. And, and that passage comes to us, it's actually Exodus 25, verse 40. We're gonna read here how he quotes it from the Septuagint version. But he says, just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the temple or the tabernacles. Now notice the strong language here. When Moses was warned by God. This is interesting to think about. Sometimes this is a section of scripture, if we're honest, in Exodus that we can read over a little bit quickly in our Bible reading time without giving it due justice. But so maybe we haven't caught before that when God called Moses to build the tabernacle, he didn't just tell him to do it. He commanded that, it, in fact, he warned him to do it or else. That's the way the language reads. Now, what's the implication of that? What's the significance of the fact that when God told Moses to build the tabernacle, he didn't just simply give him an instruction, he gave him a warning. The reason is what we're gonna find here in this quote of Exodus 25, 40. Look back at the, the passage here in verse five. What is the warning? God says, see that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Now the warning here is the phrase, see that you make. That is instead of just saying, make it this way, he says, see to it that you make it this way. And that's where he's picking up on is this warning, the significance of God warning Moses not to do it uh, in any way less than what he has said, see to it. Now the author of Hebrews, by the inspiration of the Spirit, is revealing to us that the reason this was so significant is because all along that earthly tabernacle was pointing to something else. And so because it was pointing to something else, he had to do it a very specific way. He couldn't just say, hey, go build a tabernacle and y'all worship there. No, he says, I want you to build something very specific. And hopefully this kind of helps you now as you read back through those passages in the law and you read these very minute details. Why is he spending so much time in the law giving us these details of the exact measurements of all these things? It's because they point to something greater. It mattered that it was made that way and it pointed to the greatness of Christ and his ministry in the true tabernacle. So the next time you read those verses, picture the fact that Christ ministers now in the true tabernacle and that's why it mattered so specifically that those things were made with care. When we put all of this together then, this begins to help us understand anew the superiority of our Savior. So Christian, do you fully value, do you appreciate the value of your savior. I want you to take some time this morning. Think about how much you value Christ. Do you think of him in the way that the author paints him here in Hebrews? High and lifted up, seated at the right hand of the father and not just knowing those things, but meditating on them to the point that the meaning of them and the significance of them has impact in your daily life and decisions because you so supremely value the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that tempts your faith to be shaken in this life? What circumstances often keep you awake at night? What most tempts your heart toward anger, discontentment, doubt, and fear? 
Now compare that to the fact that you are Christ's and he is yours. Consider that thing, that that relationship or that thing that you desire, consider that in the light of Christ, your great high priest, and watch how quickly those worrisome, burdensome thoughts fade into the background in the light of his glory and grace. Don't you see, Christian, that so much of our trouble in our Christian lives stems from the simple fact that we value the things of earth more than they're worth and we appreciate Christ far less than he deserves. So much of our trouble comes back to that simple error. And in Hebrews, God is calling us through the inspired pen of this author to reverse that order to think rightly about the things of earth and rightly about the value of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now at this point, we are prepared to cross over that bridge between chapter seven and chapter eight and following and he gives us one final explanation that really lands our feet on the other side of the bank. We're going to end on this explanation and then pick back up with it again next time because it both closes out this introduction and ushers in the verses to come. And here's the third explanation, the superiority of his ministry in verse six, the superiority of his ministry. Read verse six with me again. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which has been enacted on better promises. Now let's just take a moment and synthesize all the arguments that the author has made and we'll begin to see how this fits together. First of all, Christ must necessarily have a ministry if he's going to be a high priest and his ministry could not be carried out in the earthly tabernacle, but instead his is carried out then in the heavenly tabernacle And therefore, that means he must have a superior ministry, superior priest, superior sanctuary, superior ministry. And if he's obtained a better ministry and it can't be carried out under the old covenant, then what's the implication of that? There's gotta be a new covenant. With him, he ushers in a new covenant and that's the idea here. Christ's superior ministry comes with a superior covenant and we're gonna have a a lot of fun walking through the glories of this new covenant in the weeks to come but here he just simply introduces it. He says, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. What is a covenant? A couple of quotes here to help us with this. Alan Cairns defines a covenant as a a compact or an agreement between two parties, the obligations of which are mutually binding. Or another way to say it, Richard Phillips says, a covenant is an agreement or a contract established for relating to someone. It is the terms of a relationship. So under the old covenant, under the law, the binding relationship between God and his people demanded that the people keep the law. You remember, as long as they kept the law, they were blessed for doing so. And when they disobeyed, there was a whole list of curses that would come upon them. Now it's important to note, just as a side note here, that 
While that is true, under the old covenant, that's how God related to his people. Salvation has always been by grace through faith. There has never been a time in which a person earned their salvation. We're talking about the way the people of Israel under the old covenant related to God in their relationship with him, but even they could only be saved by faith in the coming Messiah and God's promised redeemer, just as we're saved by faith in the fact that Christ has come. So we don't wanna get confused on that. But the old covenant, no doubt, was a works-based covenant in the sense that the, the people had to work. They had to keep the law of God in order to remain in his favor and receive his blessings in their earthly lives. But notice here, as we talk about this new covenant and the terms of this new covenant, Christ is the mediator of this covenant. Verse six, but as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. What's a mediator? A mediator, here's David Allen's definition. It connotes both one who is an intermediary for the purpose of settling a dispute and or one who is a guarantor in a commercial sense who stands as surety for a debt or who ensures that a contract would be fulfilled. So think about this, there's a new covenant a new way in which our, we will relate to God. And Jesus is the mediator of that covenant. In the case of Christ, he really functions in, in both senses. He is the intermediary between us and the Father, sitting there at the Father's right hand, but he's also the guarantor of that covenant. It's based on his own blood. He purchased it for us. And here's the crazy thing. Both covenants are work-based covenants the difference is who does the work? In the old covenant, man had to work to keep the law. It was burdensome and that's why the sacrificial system had to be continual because he was constantly failing. In the new covenant, it also is built upon works but on the works of Christ himself who came and fulfilled the requirements of the old covenant so that he could usher in the new. This is a better covenant. This is the good news of the gospel. When you think about the point of the old covenant, Paul says the old covenant, the law was there to reveal our sin and what a masterful job it did. Just think about the 10 commandments. Just take the first commandment that you shall have no other gods before me. Not a single person has kept that command in perfection. Every single time you valued something to the point that you're willing to sin to get it, you've devalued God and you've valued that thing as if it were worthy of your worship. The Bible says this leaves all of us guilty before God, all of us needing to be reconciled to God, deserving his wrath, but Christ, this mediator of a new covenant, has made a way for us. The Bible says that Christ was the God-man, fully God, fully man in one person, and that he lived the perfect life, fully under the old covenant, required to keep the entirety of the law, and he really did it. He actually did that, and then offered that perfect life as a sacrifice on the cross to pay for the sins of his people, for all who would come to repent and believe in him. And then he didn't stay dead, but as we sang about, he rose from the grave on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father, where the author of Hebrews says, even now he sits ministering on the behalf of his people. The Bible says, if you'll repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ, you will be forgiven of your sins and made right with Christ forever and have eternal life. This 
is a better covenant. And it's built, he said, on better promises. We're gonna have the privilege of digging into just how that covenant is better and just why those promises are better in the weeks to come. But as we close, let me just leave you with two points of application to take home and to meditate on. Number one, let me encourage each of us to consider the privilege of such a high priest. Consider the privilege of such a high priest. I wanna encourage you today and this week, take time, specific time to meditate on the privilege you have, if you're a believer today, of having Christ as your savior and as your priest. Let me ask you again, how highly do you personally value Christ and his ministry on your behalf? To help you answer that question, let's just return quickly to the illustrations we began with. Think of the value of an object like a vase and how it would change the way you carried it. Think of the way that a soldier appreciates his country in a way that a child cannot and ask yourself, has your value of Christ actually changed your daily life? Do you live differently because of the way you value Christ? Your value of Christ, for example, should affect the way you treat his word. Your value of Christ should affect the, the effort that you put forth towards obedience to his commands. Your value of Christ should affect the way you speak of him, both in frequency and in fervency. And your value of Christ should bring proper balance in your life when it comes to valuing temporal things versus valuing eternal things and the person of God himself. In what ways has your value of Christ affected your life? And then secondly and finally, crucify the temptation to overvalue earthly things. Ask yourself, what earthly things most often steal my joy when they fall short of my expectations? What earthly things most often preoccupy my thoughts and my ambitions and my energy? Is there any earthly thing that tempts me to question God's character or God's power when it's threatened to be taken away from me? These are the kind of questions we need to ask when we're testing our heart for valuing earthly things over Christ. When you're tempted like the Hebrew Christians in this context to allow yourself to be consumed by the trials and difficulties of life and, and, and your faith begins to shake and wobble under the weight of those things, take your spiritual gaze, put your mind to the task of thinking on the Lord Jesus Christ. See him there, seated at the Father's hand, your great high priest ministering for you, Christian, and hold on. If he ministers on your behalf and he and the Father hold you in their hands, then what earthly thing can rip you out of those hands? We have such a high priest. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these clear, profound truths in your word this morning for the joy of meditating on our savior and what he has accomplished for his people. God, we also wanna pray for those who might be with us who are not in Christ, who have not yet come to value him as they should, to see their sin for what it is and their need for him, that today would be the day that you would draw them to Christ through faith and repentance in him. 
And for those of us who are in Christ this morning, God, help our lives to be marked by the value that we place on him and continually by the power of your spirit through your word, help us to see in more detail and more depth just how valuable he is and may that in turn create a a continual cycle of sanctification as we press forward by your grace to follow him and love him more faithfully. Thank you for our savior, our great high priest. It's in his precious name we pray, amen.